0: Hi, this is Chris Myers. For more than three decades I've covered some of the biggest events in sports and talked with some of the most fascinating personalities. But now I want to invite you to join me for my new podcast, CMI, the Chris Myers interview on Podcast One. Covered a lot of events. World Series, Red Sox, White Sox breaking through at their time. The Super Bowl, as recently as Mahomes and the Chiefs coming back against the 49ers. I was there to grab Brady after he had that tremendous comeback against the Falcons in the Super Bowl and some tough times. The 89 earthquake World series that rocked the bay bridge and first to talk to oj simpson live after both of his trials and on the air through the 1996 atlanta olympic bombings informing people as best we could at the time we'll go in depth on stories past present and future to the effect of the world of sports and everybody in and around it from current athletes hall of Famers, and some people you and i know hope you tune in to cmi the chris Myers interview on apple podcast podcast one and spotify
2: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin freelance writer including work for 538 and his last night in basketball substack and there's a lot to talk about i mean we have four series going on right now also have all of the amazing action that has happened so far so a lot of ground to cover this episode is brought to you by bet online use the podcast one promo code to get a special sign up bonus and tell them they came from us and it's a really great episode i hope you enjoy it thanks so much for coming on thank you
1: for having me always enjoy coming on man <laughs>
2: There are a lot of different avenues that we can pursue, both current series and also we can look towards the past. And there are a couple of places I definitely want to go, but I want to give you the choice of where to start because things are moving so quickly that I don't know what you've been fixating on the last couple of days.
1: The thing that I'm fixating on the last couple of days is actually something that I'm not prepared to talk about yet because I just got the data that I need to do it and I don't want to spoil anything. (laughs) That's totally fair. Yeah. Um, So So I'll
2: I'll pick, I'll pick up or do you want to pick a place to start then that isn't that?
1: Um, I mean, I, I think that the, the question of like, should Giannis guard Jimmy Butler is not particularly interesting to me. I think what's considerably more interesting is the stuff that Draymond talked about on inside the NBA last night about how you know the bucks do have shooters but the heat just aren't respecting them they don't particularly care if pat Conton or dante Divincenzo or you know even chris middleton or lopez or kyle corver shoots a three all they care about is not letting Giannis get within five feet of the rim and you know that gets at a key difference between you know like when someone shoots a pretty good percentage from three even if they do it in a decent amount of volume and you know being treated as a shooter like you know it it brings me back to so back in the day uh i don't know why this is the first thing that came to mind but you know when andrea bargnani would shoot like 36 to 38 percent from three and when the knicks traded for him it was like oh he's a great pick and pop shooter it's going to create so much space for carmelo and he really wasn't because people didn't care if Andrea Bargnani shot 36% from three, which, by the way, he didn't most of the time, he was shooting like 32, 33% from three, which is even worse. When they leave you open and you don't make the shots, which is also what's happening, you know, in large part with the Bucks right now. So it, it, it's not enough to be a willing and even capable shooter. You have to be treated as a shooter, and they're just not treating anybody as a shooter right now.
2: What makes it so? Juicy is that the kind of the overall philosophy of Miami in that respect is actually somewhat similar to a bro- in broad scope something that Milwaukee does, which is easy shots around the basket and free throws are more damaging for you defensively and easier fruit offensively than damn near anything else. And so Milwaukee has redefined the math problem, and you know, and especially in the regular season, it has worked out that they've sold out to protect the rim. They have a ma- in terms of personnel and also in terms of scheme protecting the rim without fouling, grabbing defensive rebounds. And it, it. here's the funny thing. So I actually, I've been skeptical of that Bucks scheme against elite competition for years now. Like You know, since since we saw Booneholzer get in, it's just like, well, conceding those threes against superior opposition means that they're going in more often. You're, you're changing the math problem. And then there's this interesting other nuance right now, and the Warriors were the archetypes here, that the best teams don't necessarily attack them as frequently. The Warriors had some really high rim field goal percentages, but they it wasn't the same structure of the attack. So you're not taking away the same thing. And then for the Bucks, what's so interesting is Giannis himself bends the math enough to make Miami's approach justifiable, if not advisable.
1: I think also, like, you look at the way the Bucks lost their games this year, it was almost always a team just absolutely going berserk from three. You know, it was like, before the hiatus, it was something like, I don't know, whatever it was, like eight of their 11 losses or whatever were to teams that made like at least 15 threes or their season high in threes or something sort of crazy like that. And that's sort of what you feel like has to probably be coming for the Bucs at some point. Like, I don't think, you know, the, these guys are going to keep missing the shots that they're being given. You know, they weren't necessarily an elite three point shooting team. During the season, I think they were like slightly below average, but they do have these good shooters like you're not going to get, you know, oh, for 11 or whatever from Chris Middleton, Marvin Williams and Wes Matthews for long. You know, there's going to be a night where they each hit two, three, four shots, but you're already down 2 in a seven game series. You really need to have like three of those games in the next five. And it's just like, are you sure you're going to get that? And I 'm not necessarily sure, like I think you would have to concede at this point that they're the underdog in the series. I still think that they they can win if there's any team that can come back from down two oh it's a team that was like won sixty games last year and was on pace to win seventy for most of this season. But it has sort of tipped the math a bit just because the shots haven't fallen at a high enough rate in the first two games of this, of the series
2: right, and the way that I describe a two o lead for the underdog is you have to win four out of five, and this Buck's team absolutely can't like there there are few teams that it would have more confidence in their capability of winning four out of five than one of the best regular season teams we've ever seen but that's a lot to ask of anybody, you know, even if even if you had them as like an 80-20 favorite, which I absolutely do not, then that gets difficult. Now, you, you take that one game at a time. And if the Bucks win, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. If they win tonight, then that changes it significantly, especially depending on how they win. But another part of this that I think is so important is Mike Budenholzer. His, I like to use the term here, and it's funny because I, I articulated this well with Steve Kerr, who is politically very not conservative. But the conservatism, and in in this case, I think it's not being comfortable going back to Atlanta, playing his best players, significant minutes, thinking that a well a more rested Giannis or Paul Millsap and Al Horford back in the day, or a you know the potential of a foul out. And I think there are exceptions, but I think that is broadly the wrong approach and especially when milwaukee doesn't have suitable replacements it creates huge problems
1: yeah you do that in the regular season so that you can play him you know big minutes now like that's the whole reason to, to not play him big minutes during the regular season is so he's fresh and not insanely tired when you have to do it during the playoffs that's why teams rest guys that's why they you know manage kawai's minutes things like that like, this is the time that you're supposed to have him on the court as often as you can. Like, I wrote about it for my last night in basketball yester two days ago now when you're – honestly, I don't remember. All the days are blurring together as we've been talking about there all are, the time.
2: There are no days.
1: Yeah. Giannis in the playoffs ranks 48th in minutes per game in the first three quarters. That is insanity. Like, there is no world in which that should be the case. Garrett Temple, Royce O'Neal, uh, Carabo, Cabarro, however you say it, Maxi Kleba, Shake Milton, Duncan Robinson, Jeremy Grant, all those guys are averaging more minutes in the first three quarters than him. So it's not like he's just sitting late in blowouts. You're only playing him for like two-thirds of the first three quarters of the game it's like it's no wonder and it's not like he's, he's playing kind of the whole play.
2: fourth most of the time anyway even if it's a close game
1: right it's just nobody's saying playing 46 minutes but if you're playing your best player for 32 34 minutes and the other team is playing theirs for 38 or 40 minutes in the playoffs when you're playing the same opponent multiple games in a row like you're just at a disadvantage and you're not we're not even saying you have to go crazy like Play Giannis Middleton and, like, Bledsoe or Lopez four more minutes each. Like... It's not a lot to ask.
2: Well, especially with all of the stoppages, these games are taking forever. You can use that; teams, coaches can use that to their advantage, get their players a little bit more rest. And we're we're getting used to this now. Like that's just the way it is. I mean, it's funny doing the NBA cast; I gain a greater appreciation for that. The TV breaks are longer. The the, the the there are stoppages for reviews and for challenges and everything else. And so there there's structured rest within that. And there is a point, so sure, there might be diminishing per minute returns for Giannis when he plays, let's say, well, just like you would assume for almost every player, when he plays 36 minutes versus 32. Mm. However, there are some very serious returns if you, the minutes that you sit him. So even if he's less effective, he can, they, the Bucks can still be more effective than, than if he sat. Right.
1: And I you think- You know what's a lot worse than like 95% of Giannis? Ursan Ilyasova. Like- you know, it's just at a certain point. Or also, like, and
2: Connaughton in this series at all so far. Yeah.
1: Also, they've played seven games and lost three of them. You're down two zero in the second round, and you have the back, the almost certainly back to back MVP on your team, and he's playing like 32 minutes a night. You know, at, at a certain point, it's like malpractice. And look, that's not to say if you play Giannis four or six extra minutes or whatever, you definitely win the game. But why not try to
2: find out? You give yourself the best chance, and really that's – and anybody who argues that any strategy is, a, is foolproof or completely foolish is probably wrong. But the, the idea is always about maximizing your chance of victory, and I, I've been really impressed also with, with Spo. I mean you think about some of the issues. I actually was a little bit angry at the end of the insanity of game two. I'm like, well, why – you know, when Middleton hit that shot, why are Goran Dragic and Tyler Hero both out there? And then I went, oh, yeah, that's right. Bam had fouled out and Iguodala had the ankle issue. So mm. he just didn't have guys. And so, I mean, th- th- that's another threshold, but I suppose still to the minutes. Dragic, you know, being so judicious with him in the regular season is really paying dividends. He's been so huge for them. And also Dragic his his expected value in his ceiling is so much higher than Kendrick Nunn. So to basically not only have this Dragic, but also be able to excise Nunn functionally from the rotation makes a huge difference. And, yeah, I think Spo has done a masterful job overall, and that's not to say that it will necessarily continue. But we're not running into these same issues. And also, like one of the important differences between the teams is that there. Are, the, Spo had a couple of weird issues in the Pacers series, but generally speaking, there are a lot of iterations, permutations, combinations of Miami's rotation that make sense. Whereas the Bucks, especially when Giannis isn't off, isn't on the floor, there just aren't as many. And so I think Spo has done a nice job with the roster that Pat Riley in the front office has given him. Of like, okay, there are a couple of no goes, like players you don't want to put together and everything else, but you can make everything else work. And I think Spo's done a really good job.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I also think you know, in particular, the the typical no goes of a Heat lineup aren't as much of no goes against the Bucks. Like I don't think you necessarily want Bam and Olenek playing together against a lot of teams. I think you can sort of get away with it against the Bucks, though, just because they're big in the front court. They're gonna drop all the time. You know, Lopez is not like gonna kill either Bam or uh, Olenek in the post. You know, like if the worst thing happens and you get Olenek switched on to Giannis, like at least Bam and probably either Jimmy or Iguodala are gonna be there to help down on the drives. They're going to try to form the wall anyway. Well,
2: and Giannis' passing vision isn't the best either. He is a wonderful player overall, but that is not his biggest strength.
1: Yeah, and just like you can even play like I think Hero and Robinson together, which you don't necessarily want to do just for defensive purposes all the time. But like are you really scared of Wes Matthews or – you know, Connaughton, DiVincenzo, Corver, killing those guys? Like I'm not.
2: There's a bigger point there, which is that Budenholzer consistently throughout his head coaching, as great as he's been in the regular season, he doesn't hunt weaknesses as aggressively as a lot of other coaches do. And that's a huge problem because it allows competent opposing coaches to play flawed players. Like Duncan Robinson is is a great example of this. Now I think Spoh's still going to protect himself in key, key moments because I think that, and I think that's the right thing to do, but Milwaukee's Milwaukee is more we'll do our thing and we and we care a lot less about what you're doing. And that's fine, you know, like you can be good enough. The Bucks can win a championship that way. But there are two reasons why you want to get away from that. One, it can be more effective. You can you can get some really good things, you can get guys in foul trouble and everything else. And two, the, this goes back to the idea of Hacka. The point of Hacka was not to get these low free throw shooters a bunch of free throws, it was to get them off the floor in the first place. Mm. And Being more aggressive, attacking a – let's call it a one-way player in whatever way you can, if they're still one of the other team's five or six best guys, there's still a net benefit of replacing them with somebody who is more balanced but inferior.
1: Yeah, I think also this is why like, I've always been for a long time now such a strong advocate of using the regular season as a lab experiment and just trying – especially if you're an elite team like the Bucks – Trying as many different things as you can to see what works and what doesn't, what different lineup combinations you can get away with, who plays well together, who doesn't. Like, what does it look like if you play, you know, Giannis Lopez and Marvin Williams together? Like, why not just try something like that to see if it works against, you know, an an opponent that doesn't really matter during the regular season if, you know, you're on a rocket ship towards 65, 70 wins anyway? You know, at a certain point, Knowing what does not doesn't work is going to be more beneficial in the long run than perfecting one thing and not being able to do anything else. Um, you know, you can get elite results that way, which the Bucks certainly have. They won 60 games again. They were on pace to win 70 this year. They're an incredible team. I think they can win the finals that way just doing what they do like they're that good but if you get caught in a situation where for the last two games or like the last four games against the raptors last year where what you usually do and that thing that you are elite at isn't working at a hundred percent capacity and all of a sudden you don't have the ability to fight left-handed or to do something else i think that that is an issue that's why uh, you know, Krishna and I wrote the story we did about the Raptors defense before the start of the playoffs. Like they spend the entire season tinkering, seeing what works, wildly swinging between their strategies from game to game. Like because when it comes time to the playoffs, they'll break out a box in one or a triangle in two or a zone or they'll drop or they'll blitz or they'll double the post or they'll single cover every – you know, isolation play and you don't know what it's going to be. And they'll do it. They'll do it differently against different teams until they find something that works. And then they'll keep doing that until you beat it. And then when you do, they'll try something else. And that, that's sort of the way that, you know, it's to me, it's basically like the difference between bill Belichick who in football, like the Patriots offense and the Patriots defense, the way you would think of like the bucks offense and the bucks defense don't actually exist the Patriots come up with a new game plan every single week, depending on who they're playing against. And one week they'll throw the ball 50 times, and the next week they'll run it 50 times, depending on who they're playing. And on defense, they'll send you know a blitz 75% of the time, or they'll sit back in coverage on literally every single snap and not send a blitz at all. And it's all based on their what their opponent does and doesn't do well. And that's kind of like what Nick Nurse does. And, you know, you look at like a different football coach like Pete Carroll, who, you know, the Seahawks are like they've never had a record worse than nine and seven with Russell Wilson as their quarterback. Um, And they're good basically every year. Russ takes them to the playoffs almost every year. I think they've missed the playoffs one time in his career, if I'm remembering correctly but they also you know run the ball on early downs all the time even in the playoffs when they're playing like two years ago they lost to the Cowboys in the first round of the playoffs who were not a good pass defense but one of the best run defenses in the league. And the Seahawks just ran the ball into the Cowboys' run defense all night and did nothing because that's what Pete Carroll does. He just coaches the way he coaches. He sits in his you know cover three or cover one defense and he runs the ball on early downs and that's what they do. And that's kind of like what you get. With Mike Budenholzer they play their drop defense they play their style of offense and that's what they're going to do no matter what and it's you know that works a lot of the time you can be really good and you could you can win the Super Bowl you can win the finals that way but it's not necessarily the best way to go about things
2: and the other parallel that I think is is really interesting, and then the separation is you think about the difference in volume of play. So in the NFL, you play sixteen regular season games, and then up to four playoff games, and sixty minutes each. Basketball typically forty eight minutes, eighty two or sorry, forty eight minutes, eighty two games. And so I, I think you have enough reps to make sure that your A one is tip-top, and then yes. still have enough time to try everything else, even if you're dealing with injuries. And the, the other important part, you brought up the idea of you know, focusing on a team's weakness, it's also getting the players comfortable with, okay, if we want to do this, you've done it before, it worked, we, we have an understanding of it, versus you can't really pull something out of nowhere that you've never really done. And like we saw that with the Bucks going into some switchy stuff at various moments during last year's playoffs when their other stuff wasn't working, is that the players don't have the reps. They haven't really done it a lot. And it's true that switching is in many ways easier because it can be straightforward reads and all that depending on your personnel. But if guys don't have experience with it, it can pose major problems. And so... Nick Nurse's idea is, you know, it's, it's be ready for whatever comes. And, and the other part that I think is so healthy about it is it's the playoffs. We know you're going to get into weird things. And that's not only because series change and evolve so much, but it's also because the absolute best teams. Have unusual strengths and unusual weaknesses by virtue of how rosters are constructed, so the you 're going to have an unre- an unusual surplus of superstar players who could have any number of different strengths but will definitely have them but generally, those teams are you know they're key players and then they're support players who could do specific things well but then have other limitations. And so I think what's so striking to me about the difference between Nurse and Budenholzer is that very idea, is that Nurse's idea is, we're going to run up against weird stuff. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And so let's be maybe not 100% prepared for it, but like 75, 80% prepared for it. And Budenholzer is, we can do this thing better than everybody else. We can do it against everybody else. Why even spend that much time thinking about anything else? And I don't know Budenholzer personally, but it seems to me like there's a combination of arrogance and naivete of that where where nobody is so good, basically, that they can always do what they want to do because things are going to grind down. We've seen Milwaukee's half-court offense run into walls all the time.
1: Yeah. Also, like if you're that good and your best thing that you do better than anybody else is going to lead you to 65 or 70 wins during the regular season. Like, guess what? There are going to be nights when you can experiment and try to do not necessarily even do something else for the entire game and junk your plan. And, you know, you look super awkward, but you can say, you know, on pick and rolls against this type of big man, we're going to switch instead of drop just for this game. Because, you know, when we play against whoever in the playoffs, we might need to do that. And it's not, like, completely abandoning your principles. It's just preparing for all possible, you know, eventualities that you might face on the road to winning the finals, which is, like, the hardest thing to do in the league. Like... You know, it's that that's not again, that's not that's not to say that Bud isn't a great coach. I think he's a ter- terrific coach. Like, you don't win as many games as he has without without being a good coach, you yeah, know. And,
2: it, and um, it's not like their personnel is unbelievable. It's not like this is the most loaded roster in NBA history, especially this year. So, getting this group and developing a philosophy and and cultivating the, the players to make it make sense. I mean, Brooke Lopez has become, you know, I had him as my runner up for defensive player of the year. That is not something that was happening when he was in Brooklyn. And Budenholzer deserves a ton of credit for that. And being able to handle the absence of Malcolm Brogdon, who I think is a big part of why this team is stalling out more, especially in the non giannis minutes, is that they don't have that guy who just goes. And I think that Budenholzer deserves a lot of credit. What happens is when you when you get into the rarefied air, and Budenholzer is a good enough coach with great enough talent that they're going to be there. Like, they're going to be in this conversation. You then have a different... Lens, and that lens is is it the same thing to be to to do well in the first eighty two as to do well in the last sixteen and from my experience watching the league you know covering it for more than ten years now, the answer is no it 's not the same thing, both minute to minute and series by series, and I mean we saw. Like I mean, Arturo Goletti, who comes on the show, talks about styles makes fights, and and I think we saw that a lot in the first round, where different teams either looked better or worse because of the specific opponents, and so like I thought Houston and OKC was a really interesting series, and then you wrote wrote about the Mitchell-Murray dynamic, and I think part of that was also that each of those teams was pretty well situated to making the other team's offensive star look great.
1: Yeah, I mean, it. Helped. I think the Nuggets' defense would make pretty much anybody look great right now.
2: Um, it certainly made like, the Clippers look great on Thursday.
1: Yeah, I think you, you or I could go out there and maybe you know score like four points against them, which would be pretty incredible. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's in the playoffs. You're not just playing the players on the other team. You're playing the style of the other team too, because it's it's every single night you're facing the same thing. As opposed to, you know, when you go through the regular season and it, you know, certain styles are going to give certain other styles trouble, but it's not repetitive enough to make it stand out to the point where you would need to necessarily make an adjustment. But when you're playing the same team seven games in a row, you are playing their system just as much as you're playing their players. And that, I think, necessitates more flexibility.
2: Plenty more to talk about with Jared Dubin, but first, a message from Bet Online. Did someone say playoffs, NBA, and NHL are in full swing, and our partners at Online have you covered? So get in on all the action, including a new NBA playoff bracket contest that gives you more chances to win, and use the promo code PODCAST1 to get your sign-up bonus, sign up for a free account, and also tell them you came from us, so you get something, we get something. And if you want more, Major League Baseball continues to push through the summer, and there's no shortage of ways to get in on the action, as Bet Online has hundreds of VODs, futures, and props to bet on. Take advantage of every sport, and remember, their casino never closes. It's always there for you to check out and enjoy. So head to the website today, sign up using the Podcast One promo code to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit at BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Let's jump to, I mean, we've, we've alluded to Nick Nurse and referenced him directly a bunch of different times in this, to Raptor Celtics, which has been a, a truly fascinating series. And I think a place to start here is with the, a comment that your former current co Vatimus, I'm guessing former co host Seth Partnow made, which is <laughs> the importance of of speed on defense. And Marcusol, I, I talked about this a little bit in Dunkton last night. Marcusol is a wonderful player. He was an essential part of their of their championship run. And he will have a place within this series just like he will in every series the Raptors plays. But something that I noticed was just when a player is slow, especially against like even larger perimeter players that can make quick decisions and that can move well... You notice it a lot more, and so like it. it I, I thought that there were moments in Game Three, especially in that, that fourth quarter, where leaning heavily on Gasol—not that Serge Ibaka is perfect—that it put the Raptors in difficulty. And even though they're this wonderful defensive team, it made it harder for them to recover. Including that insane pass that Kemba Walker made, which the reason he got that was because he drove around a double team because Gasol couldn't seal it, and then that led to. Pascal Siakam having to make a choice between two guys, and Kemba Walker just being like, "Your choice doesn't matter. I'm going to get it to dice anyway."
1: Yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sure that Seth was only talking about that series.
2: He wasn't when he made the
1: comment. <laughs> um, I, I think he was talking about that series, but I don't think he was only talking about that series. And I think if you know what Seth's job before he went to the Athletic was, you probably know which series he was also talking about. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, look, I think that Gasol, the the way they have Gasol and Ibaka, I think it allows them to do a bunch of different things. Like Serge turning into the more willing and better shooter, I think makes him uh, a better fit with their second unit because like you bring in him and Norm Powell and you just have two guys like trying to go off basically. And if you had those guys playing with Lowry, Van Vliet and Siakam, that doesn't really work as well. So having OG and Gasol who are you know not necessarily hunting their own shot and Gasol is such uh, you know a marvelous passer and OG is like making everything in the playoffs in- including the ridiculous shot uh, on Thursday night. But it just – it makes them a better fit. But I do think in certain situations, you need that athleticism at the rim. Like for example, when you bring in Robert Williams and he's just jumping all over the place – That's not necessarily, I mean, it's the same thing with with Tice against Ibaka. It doesn't work athletically. The same thing, Gasol against Williams is not necessarily as good athletically, you know? So, you know, Tice is out there more. So, and, and I mean, Ibaka has the athleticism advantage over Tice, too. He's got the athleticism advantage over, like, just about everybody in the league. But there are certain situations where even though Ibaka is not. As good of a defender as Gasol, simply because Gasol essentially never makes mistakes, it might make more sense to have Ibaka out there just to be able to affect things over a larger area of the court, even if he won't necessarily be in the right place 100% of the time.
2: The other counter to that, we brought up Marcosol's intelligence defensively and his capability and not making mistakes, is. This playoffs, and it, honestly it happens somewhat almost every year, it has been a reminder of the importance of quality screening. I mean, Toronto's offense in particular, like they're, the one-on-one creation for them just ha- against Boston just hasn't been good. And a lot of that credit goes to Boston having great defensive players. I think that Jalen Brown, Tatum has had some really good moments. They have a lot of capable guys in that respect. And... That means you need something else. Now, it can be off-ball movement. It can be, you know, things moving around. But one of the easiest ones is just setting a solid screen. And that was something that cracked me up so much in the Rockets Thunder series was Houston, you know, they – because they've gone to this – you talk a lot. We all think about the floor spacing they have and and how they can move. But they also, you know, they – to me, they need to start using their guards more screeners because Eric Gordon can set an infinitely better screen than Robert Covington because Robert Covington is a string bean yeah
1: I mean, this is something that so the I wrote about this early in the season, the rise of you know guard set screens in pick and rolls, which have essentially doubled over the past four years. It went from like you know four four and a half percent of all pick and rolls. The screens were set by guards to ten percent or something close to that. And you know the reason I think is because they've been more efficient. Like teams shoot slightly better from two, slightly better from three, turn the ball over slightly less often, and get fouled slightly less often on those plays. and you add all of those things up, and it turns out to be you know a difference of like you know you know five, eight, ten points per 100 possessions, which is you know a lot. Um, so the Rockets have been the most frequent you know guard screened pick and roll team in the league. Over that period of time, and James, nobody has run more of them than James Harden. Like they do that more than anyone else. Whether it's you know Eric Gordon, whether it was Chris Paul, they'll do it with Ben McLemore. They do it. They've done it with Austin Rivers. They don't really necessarily do it all that much with Russ, just because teams are going to be okay letting Russ slip to the perimeter and shoot a three. You know, you want to do it with one of the shooters, but I mean, they do that a lot. Um, I don't know necessarily that it works quite as well against the Lakers because like you can just switch Danny green and KCP one of them onto, you know, the, the screener and one of them onto Harden, or you could switch LeBron onto Harden. Like it's, you know, I don't know who you're necessarily attacking. Maybe Caruso just because he's so much smaller. He's a good defender, but Rondo,
2: if he's in the series.
1: Yeah. Rondo, like Harden is just so much bigger than Caruso like they're probably similar in height but I mean Harden probably outweighs him but, like 30 pounds something like that like you know um, Rondo same thing um, but you know I think they're fine Danny Green and KCP switching that action all the time they're fine switching LeBron into it they may even be fine switching AD into it like it I think it's you're going to see a lot more T.J. Tucker screens, um, You know, maybe AD's defending him, maybe it's JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard. Like Whoever is being guarded by McGee or Howard I think is going to be you know, the most common screener in that series. Um,
2: well, but, and, then, and then there's an interesting through line there with the Lakers' Rocket series in that, so I brought up that screening in Toronto, Boston, is more to get their guys open because they're not creating one-on-one, and why I think the Lakers have a huge advantage in that series, which will start tonight, is because... I don't think their guys need a screen to create one-on-one you know they'll do some of course with LeBron and AD and a lot of these other combinations but the Rockets don't have anybody for LeBron or Anthony Davis PJ Tucker will probably do a solid job on one or the other but then the other guy you know they're gonna unlike Mike Boonholzer we know Frank is gonna be pushing those guys hard this is a series they have to win there are only potentially three series left if everything goes well and so I like I, I focused a lot on the idea of undeniability and To me, Harden and Westbrook, especially this iteration of Harden, they're more deniable by the Lakers than the Lakers' best guys are by the Rockets.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think just the Lakers' defense overall is just so good. Like, AD covers so much ground, and, like, JaVale and Dwight have their issues, but those guys protect the rim, man. Like, it's tough to finish over both of those guys. And then all the guards just fight everywhere all the time. Like, they're not all necessarily— you know elite defenders like i think danny is still really good he's slipped a little from where his peak was same with kcp like but they're both still like they're not giving you anything for free necessarily and same thing even with caruso um you know he's gonna make you work so is danny so is kcp like you know it's It's tough to get anywhere on the floor against those guys. And then even if you do get somewhere, you have LeBron, if he decides he's playing defense, waiting to to dig down on your drive. And then you have AD and or Dwight or JaVale at the rim. And like even I think Kuzma is still not necessarily a great defender, but he's gotten a lot better. better. Yeah. And there are certainly certain kinds of guys that he can stick with. Like I think if they put him on Eric Gordon – In this series, that's not going to be that much of an issue for him. There are certainly going to be times where he gets taken off the dribble just because he's not as quick as Gordon. But he can use his bot. Like Gordon's big thing is he's super strong and he can bully guys if he doesn't get by him. I think Kuzma has the strength to not necessarily get bumped back three feet and let Gordon finish at the rim. You know, like those are the kind of things I think that he's gotten better at.
2: I wish I had articulated it this way when Nate and I were doing the series preview for Dunked On, but this conversation has helped it. And so the Houston Rockets, in their current iteration, they make each team, like they're one of the teams that through force of scheme and force of will, they make games a very specific thing. And that is oftentimes they, they turn teams into isolation defenses and isolation offenses. And... That worked very well against the Oklahoma City Thunder because the Oklahoma City Thunder don't have great isolation offensive players. That's part of why Schroeder did so well in that series is that he just goes like you. You don't. You know if it's if it, the whole series is going to be one on one, then Chris Paul is a little bit less valuable offensively. Lou Dort is obviously less valuable. You get into all those circumstances. And then defensively, then oh crap, you have all these like small guards for OKC. They can't really guard hard and well. Sometimes they have trouble with Westbrook. Throw that exact same you know, throw that exact same structure or framework onto the Lakers series and the Lakers go, Cool. You know, like if if, if you're gonna turn this into a one on one series and we have LeBron James and Anthony Davis, fine. You know, that that we we can roll with that offensively, defensively in the day of the week and Yes Harden will have some really nice performances in this but Westbrook might have some moments too though I think he's going to have a much tougher series. I think you know especially with the familiarity that you know these these Lakers, the coaching, everybody—they're old pros. Like Russell Westbrook is a known commodity around the league, and I think that that will be a real challenge for them. And so that's the way that I'm thinking about this series. And I, I mean, I I picked it in five, but I honestly think it might be a sweep. I'd say a four and six are about even likelihood to me because of that basic thing. The Rockets do they, they and the Rockets can't really shift in any other way. They you know they and I don't blame Gerald Murray for this. They went all in on this theory and. I still think that it's a better matchup for the Rockets than the Clippers because the Clippers bludgeon it even more in a very different way. But I it I could be wrong. Like it, this is I, it might be one of those where I'm seeing it in a very specific way and I'm missing some of the nuance, but I see it in a very specific way.
1: Yeah, I think some of it depends on what kind of ISOs do the Lakers decide to attack with. Like are they gonna try to post up A D on Harden and Gordon? All the time.
2: I think they're going to post up LeBron. That's what I think. Yeah,
1: I was going to say that's not really what I would do against the Rockets. And I wouldn't even necessarily do what the Clippers did and say we're going to have LeBron get Covington into a switch and try to attack him one-on-one because LeBron isn't going to do like Chris Paul where he's going to drive in and create space and have an automatic 15-17 footer. He's going to want to get to the rim and – you know like Covington obviously doesn't have the strength but he has the foot speed at least to to slide and make things difficult and still get a respectable challenge as much as you can against LeBron. So for me it's like you probably want to post LeBron and have screeners and cutters and go that way and you want to have AD like face up against Covington or Tucker on the wing and say try to go by these guys. So it's sort of like the opposite of what you would think the type of mismatches you would get in this series is kind of the way I would attack them, especially because the – like the the Rockets, what they want is for you to post up your big man on their guards. Like that's their wet dream like – you know, keep doing that every single time down the floor and they're going to dig down they're going to make your big make the right pass or you know dribble through a double team on his way to the rim and they're going to try to force a gazillion turnovers that doesn't work if it's lebron posting up and you know what they do if you're going to have one of your guards try to drive again they're going to dig down and they're going to try to get a steal every single time or they're going to say you're going to go one-on-one and then we're going to have three guys meet you at the rim once you get into the paint and that's not necessarily what you want to do either so i think you know wing sort of isolations for ad and post-ups for lebron is sort of where i would go and that would like you know it, it moves danny green and kcp to slightly different spots on the floor i think but it's not like those guys aren't experienced at hitting those type of shots
2: Right, and I mean, there will be games in this series that swing on with which teams support players hit, hit more shots, and that's you know kind of an understood part of this story. And LeBron's, LeBron and Harden are both unbelievable at finding those guys, but whether they can actually hit or not is an interesting, interesting question. One of the wrinkles of that series that, I'm, that I think is an understated advantage for the Rockets is P.J. Tucker's biggest defensive limitation— is with really fast guards. And he had some trouble with Schroeder. Schroeder could get to his spots. P.J. Tucker, you know, he, he knows... Kind of, there were certain situations where he could kind of, It seemed like he knew what Schroeder wanted to do, but he just still couldn't get there anyway. And the Lakers don't have those guys. Like, they don't really have that water bug guard to to exploit it. So I think that Tucker, you know, he's he's going to be a wonderful defender no matter what. Like, that's that, that's the way this goes, and if he can avoid foul trouble. And I think foul trouble is going to swing a couple games in the series, including potentially game one. I'll put my signpost in there just because this, team's, this Lakers team is so different from the Thunder. Um, I think
1: also, by the way, like that, um, you know, issue against faster guards is like – the reason the Thunder won the three games when Shea actually went to the rim and the reason they lost before when he didn't. Yeah, that's right there.
2: Yeah, I I think that's a big part (laughs) of it. So yeah, I I think that the the Lakers have some of those advantages that are really interesting to watch. Um, I don't think we need to talk too much about Nuggets Clippers just because I think, you know, game one was an extreme, especially when you consider the the workload that the Nuggets have put in to to advance and everything like that, but it, I, I mean Nate and I were, were argued about this a little bit about how like how quickly the series might go, and and my whole thing was like I, they have no one to stop Kawhi, and he thought Jeremy Grant had a chance. Jeremy Grant, you know, it's done so. Like it, he, he'll do the best shot, maybe even try Millsap in some limited circumstances, but Kawhi Leonard is, is incredible, and then. The biggest problem for Denver, part of the reason why the Utah series, you know, why they nearly lost it and why it lasted so long, was their help defense is just atrocious.
1: So bad, like I, I don't like I don't want to pump him up too much, but the the two segments I actually saw from Draymond on inside the NBA were the one we talked about earlier with uh, you know talking about how the the Heat just don't care about the Buck shooters, and then the one about how Jokic just like actively doesn't slide two feet on help defense like these are not difficult rotations to make and like he can make them we've seen him try to do it before he just doesn't do it
2: all the time well and there's also the idea that jokic is typically less impactful even when he doesn't you know like there oh there's an interesting connection between where we started this podcast and here which is that a portion of effectiveness is how an opponent perceives it. I, I use the term threat assessment a lot here. And so that is the idea of how does, how does situation X shift a team's behavior? And with Jokic, to me, he's, he's a less effective rim protector, not only because he's bad at it, but also because other teams know it. And so they, they, they're not going to—like you know like Rudy Gobert alters more shots than he blocks— and he and he changes a play, uh, the trajectory of drives more often maybe even than that because teams know what's coming. And he's so good at covering ground that you can assume he's going to be around. Like there were plays where Jamal Murray was cognizant of Rudy Gobert's presence when he wasn't even really that present.
1: And, and I, I also think, by the way, that was why Murray was the better option to attack uh, the Jazz than Jokic was because – Gobert does affect everything around the rim, and it's not like Murray wants to go all the way to the rim most of the time, anyway. Yeah, you know? it's a little like, bit
2: Chris Pauly in the sense that he, what Gobert takes away best is something that you don't necessarily need. And I think that's a really interesting question with Bucks Heat as well. The Heat aren't necessarily going hard after that now. Jay Crowder's not going to take twelve twelve jump shots, three pointers in every game, and all those some of those respects. But yeah, and and I think that the other way that ties back into the Bucks the Bucks series is. Reputation matters a lot. It affects the way players. It, how, how much do you freak out when somebody's when somebody's getting there? How much do you how much do you send help and everything like that? And those sometimes it's not even about the percentage. It's not the Bargnani thirty six percent. It's about wait, is this guy going to take the shot? Is he going to make it right away? And I think that's a really interesting kind of thing moving forward. And a lot of those reputational elements are more about the player and the team than necessarily, like, it's not like the, the Clippers have a ton of institutional knowledge necessarily about thing. like Clippers, Lakers, these teams in this iteration, they've only played a couple of times. But the players know each other, the coaches know each other, and I think you can kind of game out where those where those openings are going to be.
1: I think also, like, so one of the things, obviously, that comes up every time the Bucks lose is, like, you know, Giannis needs to shoot threes and he's never going to be good until he makes, you know, is taking five threes a game and making, you know, 92% of them. Um, like, I think a much bigger issue to me is he needs to make his free throws more consistently again, starting in last year's playoffs. Like he had the, the really bad few games sh- shooting from the line against the Raptors in last year's playoffs. And his is a, uh, Uh, his free throw percentage dropped way down this year from where it was in his career levels. And he had that game, I think in game one, he was like four for 14, four for 12, something like that from the free throw line, like being able to make his free throws and being able to get like bunnies from the back of the paint where he doesn't have to run over everybody all the way to the rim every time. That's a more immediate type of issue for me than like, Is he going to take and make you know two of five threes every night?
2: Yeah, a pull up fifteen footer would make would make Giannis unguardable. You know, it doesn't need to be that three pointer. It would help. I mean, that would make him even more unguardable. If we want to think about it, you know, it's it's in the abstract. But you're right. I, I think that there is something there. Being a more reliable free throw shooter would make a huge difference. And.
1: Like, you know, just, you know who else doesn't shoot threes and when he does, doesn't shoot them very well, but it doesn't matter because when he gets to the line, which he does all the time, he makes his free throws and because he can stop and turn around on a dime at the free throw line and hit a fadeaway jumper, Jimmy Butler, like he did it against the Bucks in game one.
2: Well, beyond that, Jimmy Butler, I mean, yeah, his, his three point shooting, like, it, it's so incredible. They're talking about the idea of like, oh, you have to guard him on the perimeter. He's shooting. 24.4% on threes so far this year. That doesn't include the playoffs. And some of it is, I think, teams are... The, the reputational stuff is a little bit too strong. And, and you also don't want to read too much. I mean, 24% this year, more like 35, 36 over the last couple of years on a relatively low volume. But yeah, and and I think it's a good place. You know, you don't want to talk too much about it at the end. Is like, I hope that these playoffs in particular, because of this unusual year, can lead to some better conversations and, and better thought processes publicly, more more than privately. I mean, there are those of us who try to express it when we can, of that there are different ways that players can be great defensively and great offensively, and trying to put them in a smaller number of boxes doesn't help anything. And so Giannis, yeah, he can do some man-to-man defense, but why he is great, why he's the defensive player of the year is that he's the best help defender in the league, and he's an unbelievable rim protector, and these the reason why this Bucks you know, group has, has been the best room protecting team in NBA history. And not every great defender is a one-on-one lockdown guy. That's not the way this works. And not every player who is that like one-on-one lockdown or a great room protector is, does it in the same way. They all have different strengths and weaknesses and appreciating that instead of saying person X doesn't do thing Y, so they're not good or they're not as valuable. I, I just, I just think it leads to a terrible discourse.
1: It's incredibly stupid. Like, you know who else is a really good defender, but not particularly good one-on-one? Like Robert Covington, one of the best defenders in the league, and he got absolutely roasted by Chris Paul in isolation, like seventeen times in Especially that series. Especially at the end
2: of game six. I mean, at the end of yeah. game six, like Covington was—he was more scared of the drive than he was of the pull-up, and Chris Paul could read those little those little movements to be like, okay, he's leaning back. I'm just going to shoot the pull-up, and that doesn't make Covington bad. It just means that he's good at something different. And there are sometimes there are guys. Patrick Beverly is sometimes in this where he's a really good locked in one-on-one defender, but he doesn't, other than some stuff in passing lanes, like he's not the greatest team defender. He doesn't always necessarily, he has had some good moments though. In yesterday's game, he only played 12 minutes, but he did have some help stuff. But you get what I'm saying is like, there are lots of good ways. There are some guys who are better on-ball, some guys who are better off-ball, some who are rim protectors and everything else. And it's like, the Bucks' defense doesn't need Giannis to guard Jimmy Butler one-on-one to prove he's a man or something else. It's like, they're great at something else. And Jimmy Butler isn't the biggest reason. I mean, he, he had that huge fourth quarter in game one, but it's like... There's so many other reasons why this series has gone the way that it has Yeah.
1: Uh, by the way, Avery Bradley, another one of those guys oh, incredible yeah thank you for bringing defender him up. um you know not necessarily the best uh or most attentive team defender all the time, and that 's why like you know he has obviously an uh, incredible defensive reputation, and certainly I agree he's one of the better on ball defenders in the league. Um but the you know defensive metrics that are available haven't looked quite as kindly on him as his reputation would suggest he's you know he's a guy that not like sort of the opposite of Marcus Sol who's in the right place at the right time for the right reasons hundred percent of the time Avery Bradley is not necessarily like that but if you put him on the guy with the ball like your life is gonna suck <laughs> that dude with the ball you know like
2: well, and, and the other thing that's beautiful is these things don't always stay the same like I criticized Jason Tatum early in his career that he was far better as a team defender than a one-on-one guy, and he's gotten a lot better as a one-on-one defender, partially due to physical strength. Like, he's gotten stronger, so now those matchups against Siakam and some of the other players, he had Kawhi at moments in some of those awesome Celtics-Clippers games. He can handle that sort of thing, and so you can you can evolve and you can get better. Not every player can do everything well, but it's, it's also fun to see when a player can kind of jump a gap that they didn't previously do.
1: Yeah, um, and like... A lot of you know the the discourse is just incredibly stupid. Like when you have you know two guys who played like a combined forty years in the league, you know, just yelling past each other about you know Giannis needs to be this or that. Like I just don't know what that tells anybody that they couldn't get from literally anybody on Twitter. Like just search for like you know Giannis isn't a man or whatever and you could find that on twitter like you know tell me why this isn't happening what Bootenholzer's defensive scheme is you know what Janis's strengths and weaknesses are as a defender like if you're a guy who was in the league for 20 years or whatever and played for 10 or 12 different coaches tell us which coaches would have dealt with it which ways
2: and why cool. and, you know and, like and you know who gave a great answer on the honest thing jimmy butler <laughs> yeah Jimmy Butler gave an amazing answer for why they're not doing that. And, and I mean, I understand why current players don't really have that same latitude, but it's, yeah, I mean, I I think it's about shifting expectations and everything else. And, and I, it's, I hope that it can get there at some point. I hope that, I hope that my voice can be a part of a part of what does that, but yeah, it is, it is very challenging and it is frustrating. And part of it for me is it gives a greater appreciation of what makes this sport great. Not everybody needs to succeed in the same ways. And it's also, you know, there's this funny parallel you think about. I think about Shaquille O'Neal a lot as a player where there isn't another Shaq. Like, and it's, it, it's not surprising that nobody else can necessarily do it the same way or these old archetypes because there, there there isn't another MJ. There isn't another Scottie Pippen. And instead, these players are great for completely different reasons. And for me, not appreciating them for what they are. And also, like, if we're talking coaches and players development, thinking about the ways they can go, like... Kawhi Leonard has become a dramatically different player than what I expected, even though he was great yeah. when he was young. And thank goodness he is, because that player is so profoundly amazing and awesome. And we're going to see it not only in this round, but in the in the Western Conference Finals, and if they make it in the NBA Finals. And that's you know, it's so like, and and I think gaining an appreciation without fawning, but an appreciation for how that can work and laying out the potential paths of. Okay, this is what a guy does well now. It could be this, or it could be this, or it could be this, depending on what his aptitude is, what his what his energy is, what the coaching system is, like what. And and I love that, you know. It's you know it's more like leveling players up, like in an RPG or something else like that. Like the paths aren't. It's not linear. It's not rigid. It can be a lot of different things. Yeah, and it's just. I
1: mean, I don't know how many t- different times people have to say like the game is different, you know, before it gets through to certain people, and also like your impact. Especially now, just because the way the game is played is different. Like, you know, like when you go on, turn on TNT before the game. It's like, what do you want to see from player X? And it's like, it used to give me thirty-six points and twenty-four rebounds. Like, that's not necessarily the best way to measure the impact that somebody's having on the game. Like, you know, like, and it's it's been obvious for a while. And like, you would think that at a certain point you would hear something different, but you just don't. And it's, it's frustrating because there there are people out there that will tell you those things, and some of them even work for TV stations, but those aren't the people that have you that know, the That are being elevated. Platform. Yeah. Um, also, exactly.
2: give Stan Van Gundy every single announcing opportunity he can get. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. Yes. I'll support that 100%.
2: Well, there are a lot of – well, actually, I was going to say we could end it, but let's let's talk a little bit about your, your Mitchell-Murray piece because I thought that was interesting, and it was a good reflection of their places within within the offenses. And so you talked about the difference between – like so Murray was doing a lot on dribble handoffs and all these other things that are strengths not only of his game but of Jokic's, but Don Mitchell doing a ton through pick and roll and iso because that's what the Jazz do.
1: Yeah, um, basically I was – obviously those two guys absolutely went off for basically the entire series except for the two games that were complete blowouts where you know both of them had sort of muted performances. And then in game seven where they also had sort of muted performances, I wrote the story um, before that game. And basically the idea was like both of these guys are putting on an absolute clinic destroying the other team, but they're doing it in pretty different ways. And if you look at it basically – so. Through the first six game of the series, um, Mitchell had fifty three isolations and two hundred and fifty seven pick and rolls. Uh, Murray had twenty one isolations and one hundred and eighty four pick and rolls. So already, right there, that is an absolutely massive difference. But it was made up for by you know Murray had seventy two dribble handoffs and ninety four off ball screens, and Mitchell had. Thirty-nine dribble handoffs and forty-one off-ball screens, and you know while they were equally likely to directly create a shot for themselves or a teammate one pass away on isolations and pick and rolls, Murray was doing more of that out of handoffs and off-ball screens, and that just like that shows you the difference between the, the way the Nuggets run their offense and the way the Jazz run their offense. You know, it's a it's a lot of you know we're gonna put. You know Mitchell or Mike Conley or Joe Ingles at the top, and have them come off a screen from Gobert or you know uh, Royce O'Neill, or we're going to have them come around and then swing the ball to the opposite side where somebody is going to get a pick and roll. Um, whereas for the Nuggets, it's like Nicole Jokic is going to have the ball like ninety percent of the time, and he's going to find a cutter, or he's going to do a dribble handoff with 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 Murray, or he's going to have you know Jeremy Grant set an off ball screen for Murray and then come around that way.
2: And a part of why that series was so much fun to watch is that both defenses weren't, were, were not as strong at handling what the other team wanted to do. And so that led to these crazy performances. And, and I mean, some of it was also ridiculous shot-making. Mitchell at times and Murray at, at even more times, I would say, was just like beating a good defense. But you think about, okay, where do you want to have Nikola Jokic on the floor? You know, running, running him through a pick and roll. They had, ran into the challenges in the first, especially three games where the Nuggets had no idea what the hell they were doing. And then you can use isolations. His then that challenge is if, if Mitchell can get all the way to the basket, you get the help. And then with a, a, a DHO in particular for, for Denver against Rudy Gobert, well, he has to be out there because if he's not out there, then the guy's going to get hung up on the Jokic screen slash handoff. And so I, I thought that's part of why the series was so much fun is, is these two teams doing what they do well and really thriving off of it.
1: Yeah, and I mean it, it just sort of happened that they played each other and that what they do well is what the other defense doesn't. Yeah. you know. Um, you know that's just kind of the way it works. Like,
2: and it was yeah. it was serendipity though. It let, that series was so much damn fun.
1: Yeah, like yeah, attack Jokic in space in pick and rolls, and get Donovan Mitchell matched up on Paul Bilsap or Michael Porter Jr. in isolation. Great. You know, make Rudy Gobert come all the way out to the three point line to defend a handoff between Jokic and Murray. Fantastic. You know, like that's uh that's just that's why the playoffs are so much different than the regular season because like again you know same thing with milwaukee and miami like you're playing the other team system as much as you are their players
2: yeah that's a great point well i'll thank you so much for your time pleasure as always
1: thank you for having me man appreciate it
2: Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his work all over, including Five Thirty Eight and the Last Night in Basketball sub stack that he has. You can also check out he has an author repage so that you can kind of see everything and you can get there the best way is probably by following him on Twitter, J A Dubin5. And great to have him on. His perspective is really valuable in in all of this and it is fun with, with this much going on. There's a lot and there's a lot to tackle and um I'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity to do that. I mean you have the NBA cast, which are the live broadcasts that Nate and I are doing, we're doing that most days during the playoffs, doing one game, and it gives us an opportunity. We've done some real classics so far, including both game sevens. And then Dunked On, we're in the middle of this important transition. We're going from being every episode public to four subscription only, and then one public. And then also subscribers, Dunked On Prime is where you can get that. Dunked On Prime. Supporting Cast or Dunked On. Supporting FM it was necessary it's it, it is an undeniable reality that our specific production frequency made it really hard to get sufficient advertising. So it, you know, it, it's not necessarily something that I'm thrilled about because I wish that the world existed in a way that we didn't have to narrow the field, but the support has been really wonderful so far. So thank you to everybody who listens to this and supports that. And we will have monthly and still yearly available in a couple different tiers. And then we'll also have something for people with financial hardships. So you can get all that information at supporting cast. Nate has it as his pinned tweet, all that and Also, of course, my written work is at The Athletic, have my solo off-season previews are going on strong. I think I have three submitted that have not yet been published, and then I have, you know, keep continuing working on them as everything else is going on. So there's, there's plenty there. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast, wherever you're choosing. It's great if it's not a podcast, totally understand if it's not. Word of mouth, still important. And most important is subscribing and downloading every episode. That still makes a big difference in our business. And whether it's Spotify, or Apple Podcast, or wherever you want to get this, it should be available just about everywhere. And if there's somewhere where it's not, let me know and I can talk to our people and see what's going on there. And the way to get, reach out to me, good, bad, or indifferent, anything on this podcast or honestly any of my work, NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't promise that I'll respond, though I'll do my best to, but I have them go to a separate folder. I see everything, I read everything. Twitter is too ephemeral, so I think that it is important to value your time the way that you value your time. But the single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode that is BetOnline. Use the podcast one promo code to tell them that it came from us, but more importantly for you to get a awesome sign up bonus. So you can check them out, Online. So a lot going on, a lot of good stuff, and I think that is enough for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.